Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hello, everyone. You know, Maisha, our guest this week is none other than the brilliant novelist Britt Bennett. Britt is the author of two best-selling books, The Mothers, which came out in 2016, and The Vanishing Half, which was a massive hit in 2020. Both of these captivating novels have since been optioned for television as well, which is very exciting. The Mothers has been claimed by Kerry Washington and The Vanishing Half by HBO. And at just 31 years old, Brit is already having a massive impact on the cultural conversation. I mean, she really is. And, you know, I love both these books so much. And I'm, I'm in good company because, I mean... The Vanishing Half made Barack Obama's book list this year. But, you know, so these are books everyone can enjoy. Uh, but what I really love about what Britt does with her writing with both these these books and uh, something that we thankfully got a chance to talk to her about is how she explores and really mines the undercurrents of female relationships, whether they be familial or friendships. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of people know that here at The Root, we are a primarily, not entirely, but primarily Black female-run organization. You know, you are our editor-in-chief and a lot of our leadership are, are Black women. And, you know, so the dynamics of that, I mean, I think it really hit home for me because obviously those are such close relationships. You know, the ones we share with our mothers, our sisters, our colleagues, our friends, sometimes all those things overlapping. So I just think she does such deft work with those types of relationships. Oh, definitely. And I mean, when it comes to Black women, our relationships are beautifully complex, mm-hmm. multi-layered, multifaceted. <laughs> and so it's great you know, to see an author really address this. So it should be noted that we spoke with Britt back in November of last year. So if some of the temporal references seem off, that's why. And with that, let's get to the interview. Let's do it. Britt, welcome to It's Lit. Hi, thanks for having me. That rhymes. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Yes, that did rhyme. I didn't realize that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have so much to talk about. But first, because It's Lit is a podcast about Black books, authors, journalists, writers, practitioners of the word craft. We always like to start off each of these interviews asking the same question, which is for you to name at least one book in your life that has been life-affirming, life-changing, blew your mind, shifted your perspective on everything, just blew the doors wide open. So what was that book or books for you? Ooh, that's a tough question. (laughs) Um, I think for me, the big one that I keep coming back to, which is, I think, not an original choice at all is the color purple. Um, I think that that's a book that just sort of affirmed this connection between spirituality and sexuality and art in a way that I had never really seen affirmed, uh, particularly growing up in the church where that was not a connection I saw there. So the connections that that book draws between those three areas, I think is one that I think about often, and also just a story about Black sisterhood and the relationships between and among Black women, um, whether those are romantic, platonic, familial, etc. I think that that's something that has been important in my life and also very important in my writing. Awesome. 
So to date, you're the author of two novels, 2016's The Mothers and this year's The Vanishing Half. Now, both have been bestsellers and both have been optioned for the screen, which is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) The Mothers by Kerry Washington and The Vanishing Half by HBO. You know, this is the kind of success that, you know, we as writers, like, we dream of this. But you were an award-winning writer well before your first novel. And you'd even gone viral with an essay on our sister website, Jezebel, titled, quote, I don't know what to do with good white people, end quote. (laughs) Which we're going to double back to in a little bit. Given all that early buzz, did you anticipate that your work would have this kind of, like, success so soon, even a little bit? No, I mean, no, no, I never, you know, when you write a book, you just hope that somebody thinks it's good. Like someone who does not know you, you know, like, you know, your mom is going to buy it and like your best friend will buy it. But like beyond that, you just hope that anybody enjoys it. So I never saw any of this. Um, and particularly the, the, um, reception to the vanishing half has blown my mind and every step of the way. I didn't see any of this coming, you know, uh, well, I, I, I bought it and I love them. <laughs> Both of them. Thank you. <laughs> I'm one of those people. So I was really excited for our conversation today. And, and I have to dig right into this most recent one, um, because it was so, it, it really was so gripping for me. The mothers was gripping in a different way, but you know, this is the story of the, and I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce it right. The Vignes sisters, um, mm-hmm. who are twins and nearly inseparable until one of them secretly decides to pass her white plot twist, (laughs) at which point, you know, their narratives understandably dramatically diverge. Now, I am not at all going to be the first journalist who notes that The Vanishing Half is, in many ways, the continuation of this centuries-long conversation and a literary tradition that includes one of my all-time favorite pieces of fiction, Nella Larson's Passing. I know that was not your, even your primary inspiration, but You know, rarely have we seen this discussion evolve past the middle of the last century, you know, let alone post-Civil Rights Act, right? So why were you curious about what that would look like moving into the late 20th and 21st century? Yeah, I mean, I think think that's part of why I was curious what you just mentioned, which is that there's something that feels that the passing story has kind of stopped. Right. <laughs> like our most iconic stories, like you mentioned, Ella Larson, for me, like my entry point to passing was imitation of life, mm-hmm. um, you know, and those stories, you know, are set and were written so much earlier in the 20th century. I remember when I was talking to somebody about this book and was telling her that I was working on it and, and when it was set, she she was just like, no, no, you set your book too late. Like you need to set it earlier <laughs> in history. And I think that that was part of the reason why I found that era really interesting uh, to think about what the passing narrative looks like in a bit more contemporary light, and particularly during this kind of civil rights era and post-civil rights era, which was, you know, this moment of such tumultuous social change. So what does it mean that these characters are experiencing their own kind of transformations during this time period in which the rules for race are being challenged in these very big and dramatic ways? That was a question that I had not seen addressed necessarily in the same way. And I think I also knew that I wanted to, I knew that I did not want to write Imitation of Life. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to write a different passing story and I wanted to write one that kind of reflected my standpoint as a 21st century writer who thinks about identity in a way that's more fluid than I think a lot of these, uh, some of these earlier 20th century stories do. 
So what, what does it mean to pass even if we think that these categories are inherently kind of fluid? What does that even look like? Those were some of the ways I wanted to kind of update the, the passing narrative. Well, it was effective. I loved it. So, you know, I was actually really intrigued by Mallard, the fictional Louisiana town the Vignet sisters hail from. In Mallard, you created the sub-society, which you call a third place, of mostly white-passing people of color who comprise a town that's essentially too small to make it on the map, but is a touchstone throughout the novel. What inspired Mallard, and why did you consider it foundational to the narrative of The Vanishing Half? Yeah, it, it the town came from a conversation with my mother, who is uh, from Louisiana, and she was telling me very offhandedly one day about a a town she remembered hearing about as a child where everyone intermarried so that their children would get lighter. And that was all she said. And it just struck me because I'd never quite heard of anything like that. Um, I grew up in California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not my experience of knowing communities like this. Um, it was so disturbing and also very gripping. And the novelist in me just, I wrote it down in my like notes app because I just was like, that's fascinating. And that was really, for me, the, the kind of seed of the story was thinking about this very strange place and what it means to both leave a place like that and go into kind of the wider world where those kind of norms are not are not the prevailing norm. And also what it means to have been in that wider world and then have to return to this place and what that would do to you. So that was really, I think, in a lot of ways, it was kind of where... The, you know, sort of the big bang of, of the book. Um, it was where everything really started. You know, I thought of it almost as sort of like a eugenics project, really, mm-hmm. that they are instituting to kind of genetically engineer their population towards this ideal. And it cracked open a lot of questions that I was thinking about, about race and color and identity. So also something else that kind of stirred in me when, it was, when we were reading this you referenced that you have actual connections to each of the regions you've placed in your novels, like Nadia Turner, the protagonist of The Mothers, you were raised in Southern California. Your mother hails from Louisiana sharecroppers, like the twins of The Vanishing Half. There's a narrative that brings us back to Southern California. So on its lit, we're really interested in this craft of how writers research. So was centering your plots in familiar locations simply a case of writing what you know? Or did you consider it an opportunity to do a deep dive into your own personal narrative? Yeah, I think both in a way. Um, You know, the mothers, I honestly don't remember doing too much research into that, in part because, as you said, it was set in Oceanside, California, which is the town that I grew up in. So that didn't require as much research. This one required some research because I did not grow up in Louisiana and certainly I was not alive during Jim Crow. So it required that level of research, but also I was mostly interested in kind of writing towards my mother's memories. That became more fascinating to me than writing towards any type of historical record. So the things that she would tell me that she remembered about growing up and, you know, she grew up in Palmetto. So those types of memories and the kind of mythology of this place, that actually became more interesting to me than the history. Although I did want to look up, uh, I did want to draw on some historical research just to, you know, color out the place in a lot of ways. So I think that it was fulfilling to, uh, I mean, it was helpful to have, you know, to know somebody who can tell you stories about a place. All of that is really helpful. But I think it also became really, particularly The Vanishing Half became this way to kind of explore 
some of my family history, as you said, uh, because my dad was born and raised in L.A. So the book kind of sneakily becomes an L.A. novel. I didn't intend it to be. Yeah. But it really does, the the idea that it becomes an L.A. novel in a point, it, that became the kind of marriage of my parents of, you know, migrating, my mom leaving Louisiana, going to California, my dad being from California. It became a way to kind of marry both of those sides of my family and thinking about, yeah, these different Black experiences in different parts of the country. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's very effective, obviously, in illustrating this halfness, right, <laughs> of, of these Black right. experiences. Um, you know, each of your novels is predicated on a secret. And one of the open secrets that we know of, obviously, is this visceral and triggering understanding of how colorism and what we recognize as light skin privilege underscore the Black experience in America, which you just alluded to. And particularly with regard to, you know, when you're talking about research, I assume you're also referring to, you know, the very real history of like Louisiana's Jean de Couleur and Pas Blanc, right? You know, some of the most painful passages, like, you know, that were so difficult to read in The Vanishing Half or experience at the darker end of the color spectrum through Desiree's daughter, Jude. But you also write, lightness, like anything inherited at great cost, was a lonely gift. What would you say you're trying to excavate here or hope readers kind of explore and understand about the nuances of the color line? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'll say one thing, which is that I think part of what I was concerned about in writing this book was that I think that, you know, there are these kind of well-trod conversations about color that often, at least from my experience, often become very reductive. Mm -hmm. um, they often don't, don't go anywhere fruitful or even new or, or interesting. And they can often be this sort of, you know, dividing into this kind of almost like the Twitter kind of timeline of it all of, you know, <laughs> Who has it bad in this way? Who has it good in this way? Yeah, like kind I didn't of the oppression want to Olympics. do yeah, yeah, exactly the oppression Olympics. I didn't want to do that, you know. So I wanted to think about this kind of question of of how these perceptions of color affect all of us and affect all of us in different ways. Because I think even the characters in the book who are lighter skin, I still think that they are harmed by this ideology. You know, they may not suffer its its ill effects as you just described that in the way that Jude does, um, where she truly suffers the brunt of what I consider violence. Mm -hmm. um, she she suffers the brunt of that growing up in Mallard, but these other characters also suffer under this system. So I think that was one thing that I that I wanted to do was that I didn't want it to be a very simplistic kind of look at this. I didn't want it to turn to oppression Olympics or finger pointing in any type of way. I wanted to think about how this ideology of of colorism, which is, you know, of course, comes from white supremacy, like that is a child of white supremacy. So how, how that ideology of colorism affects all of us, no matter where you are along this color spectrum. And if, whether that is in the case of somebody like, I think about Desiree's mother, who's someone who has like truly bought into the ideology and how that's, that harms her relationship that she has with her granddaughter, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's something that harms all of us in some way. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to think about the pervasiveness of it and the difficulty of extricating yourself from it, even when you intellectually know that it's wrong. And I think that that's something that's true also of Jude, where she knows that when she eventually is able to leave Mallard and she sets out in her life, she knows that this ideology that she was taught was is wrong. But she still 
finds it so difficult to rid herself of that, uh, of this way of thinking that has taught her to hate herself and to be ashamed of her own body. Well, I mean, I even think about Desiree, who doesn't have one of the more dramatic arcs. I mean, hers is kind of like the quiet through line of the vanishing half. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even there being something inherently, there's there being something to prove there, right? Right. You know, she went in a totally different direction, but it's obvious there's something that she was trying to prove at a certain point in her life by not passing and by the choices that she makes. So I think that's a really, really, really amazing point. But there's also this through line in your work of of loneliness, right? At least your work so far <laughs> that I've read. Even the essay <laughs> yeah. in Jezebel, right? You know, um and and in The Vanishing Half, I mean you're talking about uh Stella Vignet who who passes and you say it scared her how badly she wanted to belong to somebody. And even though you're talking about obviously passing for white at that point in a very explicit way, it also felt kind of like more generally correlative to Blackness and particularly Black assimilation in America. Um, was that deliberate? Am I misreading that? <laughs> no, I think that's a great, I think that's a great reading. Um, no, I mean, I think in, in that space, I think that the point in which that comes up is when Stella is living her suburban life. Her and suburban she has a Black nightmare. friend, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, her suburban nightmare. And yeah, and, and she, she meets this Black woman across the street, Loretta, To me, that was, I think, one of the most kind of salient parts of Stella's life after she's decided to pass, which is that sense of loneliness. Um, What does it feel like to be kind of adrift and without without the community and the family that you grew up with? I think for me, in reading stories about passing, I think that to me was the hardest part to kind of wrap my mind around. Because you can understand from a logistical standpoint, if you wanted certain opportunities, would you be willing to concoct a story about your life in order to gain those opportunities? In a lot of ways, a lot of people would be like, sure. But to do what Stella does, it's, it requires so much more than that. You know, it's not just her creating a new narrative of her life. It's not even a, just her like disowning her culture. It's her truly disowning her family and her community and anyone who's ever loved her. And what does that cost? You know, what does that require from you? That to me was the big kind of emotional question of that character. So I think that her loneliness is certainly one of the the costs of it. I mean, I think in a sense of what I thought about Black people who pass, there's a sense in which, you know, there's almost like spies or something. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. they are kind of behind enemy lines. Um, and and what does it mean to to be like that one person who's kind of, you know, and and in particularly in that section where she meets this black woman and she's terrified that this woman is going to recognize her but also kind of wants her to, you know, she wants somebody to see her and nobody has seen her and and for her to be caught between the tension of those two things. I thought to me that felt like what it feels like I mean certainly the case of somebody who passes, but as you said also and the kind of larger question of what it means to be, a, you know, a black face in a white space. I think like, that what that's is it something like to be a also... Trump aide, right? <laughs> like, right. Know, oh, like a black God. Trump aide. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Of. That's I know. Oh God, that's a whole other. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that that's a novel I could write. I don't even know that I can. <laughs> I don't think my imagination goes that far. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Speaking of Trump, Mm. (laughs) it's an excellent segue. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Trump, you know, he doesn't think he's a racist. Thinks he's a good guy. You know, he he loves his blacks, <laughs> um, which makes me want to double back to your 2014 essay you published on Jezebel, the aforementioned. I don't know what to do with good white people. Although I'd argue Trump was isn't isn't even a good white person. Um, <laughs> but let's talk specifically about that article. Okay, so sure. it was published in the aftermath of the non-convictions of the police officers who killed Eric Garner and Mike Brown. And all the well-meaning white people who, like, come out of the woodwork when we experience these types of tragedies like this. And you wrote on Jezebel, quote, sometimes I think good white people expect to be rewarded for their decency, end quote. And you also said, what a privilege to concern yourself with seeming good while the rest of us want to seem worthy of life. That was a word. Now, obviously... (laughs) Not a lot has changed in the years since you wrote this. And this year has been yet again filled with violence and Black death and tons of well-meaning white people, you know, with their performative Black boxes and gestures of goodwill, all of which was culminated in an election that proved racism is alive as ever, considering the millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of white people who still voted for a second Trump term. What do you say to all those good white people now? <laughs> you know, honestly, I mean, I think as you said from the title of that essay, to me, that entire essay was me trying to grapple with my ambivalent feelings. And I don't think my feelings have become any less ambivalent. I think that that like not knowing is is so central to to that essay and to how I feel now. You know, I think, yeah, I think it, it's strange to, to, to think about the connection between that moment and now, because really that essay came out of watching a white person I went to school with be performative online. And I just remember texting another friend some snarky things about it. And they were like, well, you should just write this thing. And I ended up doing it, but it was basically the proto black square is what I'd seen that inspired me to write that essay in the first place. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think that to me, it's been strange because this whole summer, my, my book actually, The Vanishing Half came out the day that everyone posted the black squares. Oh, it was gosh. the same day. <laughs> um, so all summer when I was talking about this book, people kept asking me, mostly, mostly white people. I don't know how many black journalists even asked me this question. But mostly white journalists asking, you know, is this the moment that things have changed? Like, how do you feel about this moment? And I knew that they wanted me to say, yes, this is a watershed moment for race relations. Like, we're never turning back, you know? And I always was just saying, you know, it's too early to tell who knows. But to me, one of the weird, like, moments where I'm like, we should have known was (laughs) when there were articles coming out about all the white people who ordered, like, white fragility and who, like, 
you know, onslaughts of people ordering white fragility and how to be an anti-racist from these black bookstores who did not go to pick up the books once they arrived. Oh, wow. Like their, their level of interest <laughs> between learning how to be an anti-racist just died in the however many weeks it took for the book to actually arrive. And that just felt like such a metaphor um, for the ways in which this kind of performative allyship plays out of, you know, this surge of interest and this moment of people thinking, okay, we've got to do something. Let's post a black square or let's buy this book. And then as a little bit of time goes by, that interest dies down. Um, people start, you know, sort of reverting to the mean in a way. So, I mean, that's not to say, I, I won't say that I, I feel that nothing has changed since I wrote that essay. I think the fact that, you know, for example, this, this past summer, like, people starting to actually face backlash for saying all lives matter. Like that was a thing that was kind of new. I think it was Drew Brees who had some uh, real backlash in a way that he had not received for saying kind of the same thing in 2016 or 2017. Um, so there were people starting to at least realize that, that that whole semantic game is just a derailing. And that seemed to be a more kind of widespread notion, the idea of Black Lives Matter becoming a less scary phrase for kind of mainstream white America, that seemed to kind of move in the right direction. And I think the larger conversation about defunding police, I mean, that was something that felt like very of this moment that I had not seen in a, in a larger way when I was working on the essay. So I think there are these kind of broad gestures and, and these moments of change that or gestures towards change, I'll say that I think are trending in the right direction. But what I think about often is that um, Lauren Michelle Jackson wrote this really great piece, I think for Salon, that was about, it was about going to the the author who wrote White Fragility, going to one of her workshops. And she just talks about in the end, the idea of white people needing to both move toward and away from whiteness. Like the first step is moving toward whiteness and like interrogating what it means but the next step is moving away from whiteness then and kind of abdicating its power. And the problem that she saw, which I agree with, is that what we saw was white people moving toward whiteness. They made that first turn. I'm going to, you know, try to read this book about white privilege and try to understand what that means. But they haven't moved away from it. And, and I think that's what we are still waiting to see that final turn. And I don't, I hope we see it. I don't know. But I, I think to me, that is... You know, we've seen that gradual move to whiteness. We have not seen the turn away from it yet. You know, it's that reminds me of uh, something. I read an, an interview you did with Vanity Fair earlier this summer, and you said, I'm paraphrasing here, you said, are they willing to lose something, right? <laughs> you know, what are you willing to lose, you know? And obviously, you're not the only person to say that. But, you know, this concept of loss that I think is so central to our experiences, you know, this sense of always having to sacrifice something or someone or some piece of our identity to kind of like function, you know, yes. that is not central to the majority of the white experience in America. And so I, I really was yes. struck by that. And I guess that leads me to my next question. I don't know if this is exactly a tie-in per se, but, uh, you know, one of the lesser talked about similarities for me, <laughs> at least as somebody who writes about women's issues of the vanishing half to passing in particular, and you alluded to this earlier, is this theme of female intimacy. And it runs through all your work. And, and I love that you said that it's an integral part of your work, but it really, for me, was writ so large all over this novel. It, and in many ways, it supersedes 
everything else, you know, including marriages and lovers <laughs> and, and even in a weird way, like mother-child relationships, like it's there, but like the peer relationships are so intense, like so intense, right? <laughs> you know, not even romantic necessarily, just intense, you know? Uh, um, and, you know, I have my own thoughts and feelings and experiences of why uh, female relationships can be so loaded and important and dynamic and necessary. But uh, I would love to hear you talk more about what intrigues you about mining these particular dynamics in your work. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I often joke that I just don't write about men and I, I don't know that that's, it's not a hundred percent true, but it's mostly There's some beautifully true. rendered men in, in, the, some, in your books. Yeah, like, there, absolutely. There's a few. <laughs> there's a few. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think part of that comes from, I grew up in a very heavily female household. It was just my dad and I have two sisters and my mom. So I grew up in a household with a lot of women and, and, a, and also the fact that we outnumbered my father so dramatically, like there was never, I never had any feeling of, well, I'm a woman, so I can't do X. Like I never had that feeling growing up in my house. I always said whatever I thought. And, you know, my dad is not some real like he man, you know, whatever. So um I never had that feeling growing up. And I also like I think knew from a young age about that kind of primacy of these relationships between and among black women um, specifically. And and I think also just for myself, I mean, I think a lot of the most intense relationships in my life have been with my female friends, mm -hmm. you know, as far as people who have really been there for me, the as far as the the fights that have been really devastating. <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that those have been really the the primary relationships in my life. So I think that that's one of the reasons why I find them to be so fascinating. But I think also like they are so fraught and also very stressful often because of that intimacy. Like it's that combination of the closeness of the bond which heightens the stakes for anything that happens. Um, when you're very close to somebody, that means that they know exactly how to hurt you. Um, so there's something about that that I also find just to be really interesting and, and challenging. So I, you know, I, I don't think that it was something that I set out to be like, this is what my project of a, as a writer is. But I was laughing also as you were talking because the next thing I'm working on is also about a very fraught <laughs> female friendship <laughs> at the, the total center of the book. So very on brand for me. But I just think like that those types of dynamics, I think that they've been steadfast in my life. So a lot of times like these friendships that are, you know, at the center of these stories have have always felt a lot more heightened to me than even romantic relationships. Have. I agree. I just think like there's something so strange about friendship in a way because it's like you are just willingly choosing to enter into this relationship with somebody with no expectation of romance, no expectation of sex, no expectation of like making money or, you know, any other, other motivations that we have. Providing life, for each other. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like all these motivations we have of why we pursue certain types of relationships, all of that is gone from friendship. It's just, I enjoy your company and I want to spend time around you. And what happens when that bond is under the stress of something that a marriage might be under or something that any other type of relationship is under, like what keeps that bond together or what breaks it apart. And I think it's just something that I've always been really fascinated with and, and have 
come to just kind of embrace as like, yeah, I'm, I am more interested in writing about this than writing about women and men or something, you know, like I'm just more interested in writing about particularly the relationships between and among black women and what our dynamics are like with each other and, and yeah, what happens when those bonds are tested. Yeah. Those betrayals, I think, cut deeper. I I agree with you. I think so too. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) So Britt, because of the success of your two novels, you're now an executive producer and a scriptwriter in screen development for your projects. And you're also working on your third novel, which you, you know, alluded to, which we hear will be extensive. <laughs> how have you found the pivot to screenwriting? And most importantly, how are you navigating the development of these concurrent narratives you're working on? Yeah, so so for the mothers, I wrote that screenplay and I found it really challenging, to be honest. Um, I went into it kind of thinking. And to be fair, was told, oh, you know, if you wrote a novel, like you can write a screenplay, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, What's the difference? <laughs> we all laugh yeah. like, oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, and and you know, it is a huge difference. It's a very different. I mean, the like the economy of language. You know, the what I love about novels is I love to be able to linger. I love that you can have some random character from page fifty, and then they come back, and here's a chapter from their point of view. I love doing those types of digressions in novels. You obviously cannot do that in a screenplay. And beyond that, it was just challenging adapting my own work because I had lived so long with the book. And when it came again to truncate it, there were, I was like, well, you know, we can't, you know, I, I, I don't think I was being super precious about the story, but I also just had a hard time imagining it being any other way because this was the way I had thought about this story for seven or eight years of my life. So I found that, I found that particularly challenging. Um, I, I'm not going to be writing the screenplay for the vanishing half, um, but I am executive producing, as you said. And that I've found really fun so far. We're still at the very beginning of the process. We're just assembling the writers and assembling the producers. Um, uh, but it's been so really thrilling and fun to talk to all of these very brilliant, all these very brilliant black people, um, in, in the assembling of this team. We'd love to hear that. Um, yes. Yes. And. <laughs> Um, so that's been really fun. It's been so cool to kind of hear people's ideas and, and imagine what this book could be like translated into some totally different form. And I'm really excited once, you know, the writers start outlining and everything next, I'm excited to read kind of what they're cooking up. So I'm happy to be involved in, in this way. I think is, is, has been, um, it's been a l- less stressful than writing. And so far it's been really fun just to be able to, I think what I'm looking forward to is, the idea of collaborating on television, which is so different than writing a novel where you're just in a room by yourself the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Creating a novel is so much like the birthing experience. Like you're just, you're creating something completely like just, that didn't exist before. And now it's here. And it and doesn't matter how many people mind. are holding your hand. You still got to push that sucker out yourself. <laughs> yeah, you got to exactly. do it. You got to do it. <laughs> Well, Britt, it was so amazing yes. to have you with us on It's Lit. This was such an illuminating conversation. Absolutely. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We wish you just continued success. We can't wait to see these adaptations on our little and big screens. So excited. We're ready for it. <laughs> Thank you both.
The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you could find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S as in Sam, H-A, and Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you into these days? Well, I have just delved into a brilliant new book by a writer that a lot of us know and love, Charles Blow. Um, the Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto. I'm excited to say we should be talking to Charles yes. <laughs> soon. Uh, but, you know, I, in preparation for that, I'm reading this book. And, you know, we had the pleasure of talking to a lot of authors last year who kind of had these belated bestsellers, right, on race. This is really intriguing because this is probably the first book I've read that was written during and, and immediately subsequent to the events of 2020. And so, you know, Charles is especially gifted, at, I think, at, at putting our angst into words. You know, whether you're following him on Twitter or reading his columns, he, he really gets it. And so uh, I'm excited to get into this book further, both for myself and uh, for its lit, for our readers and listeners. What are you reading? You know, I am also staring at a copy of Charles Bull's news. Get you into book. it. Let's do this. <laughs> Because it looks good, girl. I need to get yes, into it. It but, is. And it's like, you know, and it's, I got like two pages in and then realized I was like 40 pages in because you, it's so, I really think it speaks to the moment. I think it speaks to this gut-wrenching thing and, and this tension that we're still all carrying. I mean, this is mm-hmm. not over. None of this no, is over. Not. You know, we have a new administration. Bless it. <laughs> but none of this is over this hell that has been wrought. So I think the uh, devil you know is perfectly titled for this particular moment. And I think it's really a call to action for us moving forward. Definitely. And that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit. <laughs>